The Lord Jesus writes, says, Matthew writes, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, the evil, from evil. And then notice how the Lord gives comment on one of the petitions. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, <clears throat> neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. But this presents us with an interesting and pressing question. Are our sins forgiven on the basis of our own forgiving others? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? If you don't forgive, your Heavenly Father won't forgive you your sins. And there's a parable in Matthew that's connected to this lesson on forgiveness. You might know the famous passage of Matthew 18 that comes before the parable. If a member of the church sins against you, what are you to do? The Lord teaches us, <clears throat> admonish gently. If there's no repentance, tell it to the church. If there's still no repentance, that person is to be put out of the church. And here we have the basis for church discipline. But what if there is repentance? What if there is repentance? What if someone sins against you and seeks reconciliation? And that's Peter's question in Matthew 18. How many times must I forgive? When does forgiveness end? Jesus' words that form the base of what we call church discipline is bracketed by the parable of the lost sheep and this parable. What are we to do with sinners, with the lost, and those who seek forgiveness? What do we do with repentant sinners? These are important questions. Because this becomes the foundation of the doctrine of the forgiveness of your sins and mine. How does God forgive and in what measure? On what basis do we seek forgiveness? Let's read that in Matthew 18 at verse 21. Matthew 18 at 21. At verse 15 we read, the, the, the basis of church discipline, and then at verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then we have this parable. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. 
He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is how your heavenly Father will treat you, each of us, unless we forgive our brothers and sisters. And that's not just some superficial forgiveness. The Lord says it must be from the heart. And then we say, who is sufficient for these things? But before we move on, let's turn to Psalm 51, 5 and 7.
So the question put to us, is the forgiveness God grants us conditional on the forgiveness we grant others? That's the question we're faced with this afternoon. The Lord Jesus says there's no room for revenge. You have no mercy. There's no forgiveness for you. Let's explore some of these themes. Jesus tells the story of an unforgiving and an unforgiven servant. It starts out with Peter asking, how often must I forgive? Even seven times. Imagine, even seven times. But we need to turn to Genesis to understand Peter's question and Jesus' answer. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 4 with me this morning, this afternoon. Genesis chapter 4. The story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel and God passes judgment on him. He says, away from me, get away from me. Away from blessing, away from grace, be gone. But Cain complains, I can't bear the punishment. If anyone finds me, he'll kill me. Let's read that, Genesis 4 at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, the land of wandering east of Eden. Let's keep your Bibles open for a minute. Notice how Cain is actually unrepentant. His punishment doesn't lead to remorse or to repentance, but to self-pity. He goes, oh, poor old me. He has a pity party. His sin just continues. First he is engaged in bad worship, then anger, jealousy, plotting evil, trickery, murder, lies, self-centeredness, which only confirm his alienation from God. 
pity me. Whoever finds me will kill me. But God says, not so. Whoever finds you and kills you will be avenged seven times. There's even a measure of grace for Cain. But the story continues, for there was a man called Lamech, the seventh from Adam through Cain, and he marries two women. He's the first bigamist. Ada and Zillah. And this Lamech is the epitome of arrogance. He calls them to hear his exploits one day. He says that a young man had hit him. So he, in response, killed him. Genesis 4 at 19. And Lamech two wives, the name of the one was Ada and the other was Zillah. And then at verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-seven fold. Do you hear the words of the Lord Jesus here? How often must I forgive? Even seven times? No, says Jesus. And he comes with the evangelical counterpoint to Lamech. Not seven, but 77 times. Lamech killed for a wound, mortal vengeance for an injury, Revenge for wrong. But Jesus says, Lamech is wrong. No revenge, no retaliation, no get back, no comeuppance. And this is the natural inclination of the human heart. At least it is of mine. Someone does you harm and you imagine how you're going to get him back. That's what I should have said. That's what I should have done. That'll fix them. Who of us hasn't had those thoughts? But the Lord Jesus says no to that, no revenge. Even Cain, even, even Cain, the first murderer, was protected from revenge. Even Cain, the first murderer, was protected from retribution. Forgive seven times? Peter asked, seven times? No, 77 times. Or as the footnote reads, 70 times 7. 490 times. That's forgiveness. Peter's question is premised on the thought that at some point, forgiveness must end. Now, to give Peter some credit, he's learned some things from the Lord Jesus. Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister when they continue sinning against me? Peter, Peter wants to be a forgiving person. But come on, Jesus, revenge must begin somewhere. Peter understands that he must be frequently forgiving but he doesn't think that he should be forever forgiving. What he's saying, in essence, is, Jesus, we want to follow you, but we're human after all. 
even in the previous part on church discipline. There is judgment, isn't there? The last judgment is coming, isn't it? And we say yes, but wherever there is repentance, there will always be, ever and forever, divine forgiveness. This is at the heart of the Lord Jesus' teaching. There is real forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness of debt, not revenge. If God should mark our sins, who could stand? In Luke 17, 4, we can read the parallel passage there. Jesus says that if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive him. And here in Matthew, the preceding passage on church discipline speaks of a sinner being admonished and refusing to listen. Listening being taking to heart. Hearing and taking to heart. In other words, both of these passages presupposes some sort of repentance. But Jesus doesn't focus on that. Thus we too quickly say, well, he's not really sorry. Or it doesn't, a person doesn't need to put up with that endlessly. The Lord's meaning of 77 times or 490 times is this. Never give up on someone. I don't. The ancient myths of Homer, of Babylon, of Europe tell of heroes bent on revenge. In Homer's epic tales, Achilles' revenge is heroism's badge of honor. This is the stuff of action movies, of the great TV dramas, of the settling of scores, of the great crime families, of the Corleones, celebrated on the silver screen. But Jesus' teaching is not the teaching of the silver screen, but of the golden rule. No revenge. Homer taught that it was heroic to wreak revenge. The Lord Jesus teaches us that it's heroic, more heroic to conquer revenge. No Lamech spirit here. No revenge 77-fold, but forgiveness unlimited. And to make the point, Jesus tells a parable about a man with no mercy. No mercy? You're bent on revenge? You're going to meter out your mercy in a miserly way? Your generosity has limits? Well, this is what happens when there is no mercy. There was this fellow who owed his master, the ruler of the king, 10,000 talents. That would be about 10 billion, with a B, dollars. This is not the debt that a man can normally make. Almost impossible to make such a debt. But here's this fellow, he owes the king 10 billion dollars. 10,000 million dollars. If a working man earned a denarii a day, it would take 20 to 30 years of earnings, saving every cent he made to earn 
one talent. And this would be 10,000 times that. The earnings of a working man for 200,000 years. That would be all of us, all of us here in this auditorium today, I'm guessing at the numbers here, working for a thousand years, pooling all our money and never spending any of it. All of us working for a thousand years, pooling all our money and never spending it. That's what this man's debt. This man's debt is really big. A really big debt. We could even translate this to be tens of thousands of talents. Gazillions of dollars. A debt that can't actually be calculated or comprehended. And this fellow represents each one of us. The Lord Jesus sees us as people, individuals, who have amassed a great debt. We're not usually aware that things are really this bad. All around us the world talks of people being good. You'll hear it on the news. When there's reports of funerals, especially if the death was tragic, traffic accident or something. She was a good person. She's with the angels looking down at us. Who's not heard that? She is such a good person. That's the standard. She's good, so God received her into heaven and gave her a place with the angels. The Lord Jesus says, uh-uh, it's not like that at all. You owe God gazillions in moral debt. Outside the gospel, outside the Bible, outside the scripture, outside of Jesus and the apostles' teaching, rarely are we reported as being, as, of this being a big problem. You owe God gazillions. The Lord Jesus is teaching us this truth about ourselves. So the king says, that's it, that's it. I'm done, no more patience. Sell all he has, sell him to, yes, even his wife and children so that I might recoup even a little bit. Liquidate his assets, sell his family into slavery. Everything he has is really mine, and everything he and his own can earn for the rest of their lives is mine too, and I won't even begin to cover it, but at least I'll get something owing me. So the first lesson in this parable is that we are in really deep debt. The second is, we can't pay our way out. And the third is that the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. There are family-wide consequences to our sins, generational ones. And the servant is in front of the king, and he heard the verdict. Your very person and all who belong to you are mine. You owe me and you must pay. The debt must begin to be cleared. 
And the servant throws himself down. No, no, I'll pay you back. Everything, just give me time. The truth is, as we heard, he would need many lifetimes to do that. Humanly unpayable. But he seems to be sincere. He doesn't plead bankruptcy. He doesn't say, please let me try again. He knows he owes, and he says, I intend to deal with it. But the master is a kind and merciful king, and he has compassion. His heart goes out to that servant. The servant says, I'll pay you back. But the master says, no, no need. I forgive your debt. The servant's three actions, his reverence, his plea, and his promise are met by three things from the king. His compassion releases him from prison and forgives his debt. This servant got infinitely more than he asked for. He asked for patience and a chance to pay. He received amnesty and remission of debt. He got the forgiveness he didn't even dare ask for. And here the Lord Jesus then teaches us the true depths of sin and the greatness of God's mercy. The reality of our human condition as seen in the gospel, deep debt and a complete inability to pay. This is met with the reality of God's character as seen in the gospel, a deep and profound forgiveness from the gracious King. That's act one in the parable, scene one. We sometimes think this is it. We mentioned that this morning, and it's worth repeating. We think this is the gospel of salvation. Jesus died for me and forgives my sins. But there's a scene two in the parable. This is not the destination. Yes, there is forgiveness of sins. That's absolutely true. And there's a contrite heart and there's reverence, a plea and a promise. But there must be more. Forgiveness is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. For those who are forgiven have responsibility. And so open scene two of the drama. The forgiven servant goes out from the presence of his king, and there he meets a fellow servant. And the second servant owed the first a hundred denarii. That would be about three months' wages. A denarii was a, a working man's wage for a day. So a hundred denarii, about three months' wages. It's substantial, it's not just a few dollars. This is ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Working man might make $5,000 a month, $6,000 a month. The forgiven servant grabs his debtor by the neck and chokes him and says, pay up, pay up, pay back what you owe me. This part of the story is, is incomprehensible as everything else in this story. How could the first servant rack up such a debt how could he think to pay it back? And how could the king forgive? And now, how could the forgiven servant be 
so heartless, so miserable, and so selfish. The king's gazillion dollar forgiveness should have created at least $10,000 of patience, don't you think? Don't you think? This debt was at least payable. But he was thrown into debtor's prison. Be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But no, no mercy. And the cry is almost exactly the same. The first servant should have seen himself, should have seen himself in his fellow servant. Shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we see ourselves in our relationship to God to whom we owe zillions when we deal with a personal problem with someone else? What do you think? In the deepest crisis of your life, your relationship with God, you are given a wonderful reprieve, full and complete remission of your death, full and free forgiveness of all our sins. Each of us has a debt to God, except for he or she who has no sin. And each of us, I'm sure, has had some wrong done. Each of us has a brother or sister or neighbor who's a debtor to me or you. And this scene too, the drama in this parable seems to be the next impossible. Anyone who has been forgiven much will forgive much, Jesus says somewhere else. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. But this fellow isn't like that. It's seemingly impossible, but it's true. It's true, isn't it? Just like our debt to God is huge, so his grace is unbounded. And our debt to God is real and big. It's as big as our life. But God's forgiveness is bigger, greater, all-encompassing and real. And just as it seems impossible that the forgiven servant could possibly be so heartless, so also our Savior says, this is true of many of my people. When they see debtors, their forgiveness is strained, narrow, and selfish, even non-existent. Psalm 103 resonates here in this story. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your transgressions. The Lord Jesus won't let us escape this truth. It becomes the only petition in the Lord's Prayer that deserves a comment in Matthew 6. If you don't forgive, your Father won't either. For you see, where there is no mercy, there is no forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. 
can the new people of God, so wonderfully described in this Sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, is it possible that they are so heartless? And the awful point of the parable is, yes, it is possible. Lead us not into temptation, the temptation of forgetting your forgiveness. Deliver us from the evil of heartlessness. This man forgot the king's grace. He had no appreciation for the forgiveness of the past. He was not experienced any awareness of the king's judgment in the future. He would not have choked his fellow servant if he had any sense of the reality of his own debt, a fear of his own guilt, any sense of the king's grace. He thought he could work off that impossible debt. And when it was forgiven, he treated it like entitlement. And we too can be that way. We minimize our sin and forgiveness. Of course God will forgive me. I'm a Christian, aren't I? I'm a covenant child, aren't I? God will forgive me, won't he? Does that mean we're taking God's grace for granted? Of course he'll forgive me my sins. That's what God does, doesn't he? I mean, that's what he's for, isn't he? To forgive sins. Think about it even for a moment. Just sort of process that through your brain for a moment, through your hearts. Can your neighbors, your coworkers, your colleagues tell that you're a Christian? Or do you have an attitude of entitlement to God's grace? Such was the attitude of the forgiven servant. He was forgiven an impossible debt because the heart of his master was moved to compassion. But his wasn't. Come here, you miserable guy. Pay up. And then there's a third scene in the parable. The other masters of the servants are saddened. Their hearts are moved as well. They're distressed. They're moved not to compassion, but to sorrow. They would have been overcome by the master's grace. Did you hear what the king did? They would have said among each other, did you hear what the king did? He forgave an impossibly big debt. And so now, Distressed, they report to the king what had happened. In sorrow, they report to the master. Not anger, not anger, in sorrow. Now, of course, there's a place for anger when there's injustice. But anger without sorrow is rooted in pride. There must be sorrow for sin. Our own, but also there should be sorrow for the sins of others. It's sorrow, distress, that motivates a report. And that's right, for all men are sinners. And even when an unrepentant or public sin 
is reported to the church. It must be that sorrow be the lead cause. Must it be reported in self-righteousness? Must it be reported as revenge? No sorrow. And if it had not been reported, that would have been foolish love. A kind of compassion that lets injustice reign and the sinner is left in his sin. A community without discipline is not a loving one. But a community with discipline ruled by anger or vengeance is an unchristian one. A community that does not grieve with sorrow over the sins of her people is doomed to destruction. So there's another scene in our story. The master calls in the servant. You vicious servant, he says. You wicked man. I forgave your entire debt, your monstrous debt, your impossible infinite debt. Shouldn't you have had a heart for your fellow servant as I had a heart for you? The master had granted full and free unconditional forgiveness. He had given it without any prior conditions. It was for the asking. Actually, the debtor hadn't even asked. There were no meritorious acts required. But it was not without expected consequences. No past was required, but a different future was. Fraternal love, even that is not a condition for salvation, but it is a required consequence. Salvation is a mirror. The word mirror appears in the catechism a number of times. A mirror. In the catechism, it means pure, unadulterated, unalloyed, unmixed. It's mere grace, pure grace. But when grace is appropriated by faith, it changes us. There must be no entitlement attitude in our prayers. But I cannot truly accept grace and mercy for myself into my heart without it transforming my heart. You cannot accept grace and mercy into your heart without it transforming your heart. And so Christians are faced with both a judgment at Golgotha and the judgment seat. At the cross and the chair, Paul teaches the same. There's forgiveness of sins, Forgiveness by faith, justification by faith, forgiveness at the cross, absolutely. But there is a final judgment coming, a final accounting. How did you build, Paul writes elsewhere, with gold and silver and precious stones or with wood, hay and straw? That will be found out at the chair. When you pray, keep this in mind. This petition drags us to the very front of our minds. We live between the two, between the cross and the judgment seat. And brother, sister, this is urgent. This is urgent. It's pressing. Our justification was secured at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But by that resurrection power, Lord's Day 17 teaches us, raises us up to a new life. 
In this parable, the teaching of Jesus does not lay onerous, heavy, burdensome, meritorious work upon us. No, Jesus says, just have a heart for repentant sinners. There's a lively cause and effect here, divine forgiveness, human forgiveness. It's remarkable that the debtor, the first servant, wasn't called wicked for his debt. Wasn't called wicked for what he owed. But he's called wicked for not having a heart for his fellow servant. And as the canons of Dort say, there's gospel here. There's gospel here. There's gospel, Holy Spirit power, also in the warnings, in the exhortations, and the threats of the gospel. No, the gospel is not, first of all, fire and brimstone and hell and damnation. But there's a part of that salvation says, if you pray for forgiveness and don't have a heart, if you think that you're entitled to the forgiveness without a change of heart, if that's you, then look out. Guess what's in store for you? Brothers and sisters, the warning is clear. Don't presume upon God's grace. Listen to this parable. His Lord was furious, handed the man over to jailers and torturers until he paid it all. But it was an infinite debt, and payment takes eternity. Oh, we confess the perseverance of the saints, absolutely. That those who belong to Jesus won't be lost. But let not that lead to complacency among God's people. To the eternal security of believers. As if we don't need to change. There must be evidence of transformation in the Christian life. There will be responsibility and an accounting at the judgment seat. We must live with the security of perseverance, but with a fear, a holy fear of God's anger at our presumptuousness. A mark of phony discipleship is a cavalier disregard for God's judgment, which will lead to a cavalier attitude towards people. And if we think that we are entitled in some way to God's forgiveness, we will also very quickly think that men owe us much. If God owes you something, if God owes you something, imagine how great a debt your neighbor owes you. And perhaps there is much presumption among God's people but Jesus' warning is clear. This is how your heavenly Father will deal with us if you don't forgive repentant sinners. And then it is remarkable that in the final verse, the Lord's exhortation to us is in the plural. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you, plural, forgive from the heart. A word also to the church. Do we forgive repentant sinners? Is the church a place of grace or is it a crucible of guilt and recrimination? But also personally. So let that be an introduction to Lord's Day 51. Let's turn to Lord's Day 51.
about the fifth petition. A prayer, a petition about forgiveness, forgiveness requested and forgiveness granted. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us wretched sinners any of our transgressions nor the evil which so clings to us. As we also find this evidence of your grace in us that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. And notice how footnote two includes both our readings from Matthew 6, 14 and 15, and Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Your infinite debt has been covered by the payment of infinite value. And the value of the death of the Son of God does not have quantity value, but quality value. It was the perfect payment price for the sins of the whole world. Trillions, gazillions, infinite debt, uncountable, immeasurable, for each one of us, wretched sinners, each of us. Father, we pray, don't count them against us. Not a one. Cover them for Jesus' sake, who went to the cross to pay for us. And wow, the catechism says, look at that. We find proof and evidence that grace is working in us. Your compassionate heart has transformed ours. I see the evidence in that I have a heart for my neighbor. I too forgive my brother from the heart. Here there is no room for petty things in petty hearts. No room for, I'll forgive, but I'll not forget. I forgive, but he better not try that again. Not for the weasel words either, I love him, but I don't have to like him. Imagine for a moment if the Lord Jesus would say that about you. No forgiveness offered is real. The forgiveness offered is real, but no forgiveness offered is real if it doesn't come from the heart. So what of those whose injuries are so severe that they can't be forgiven? Is there room in the church for bearing a grudge, say, against an abusive father? And I think the church must deal pastorally here. There are hurts inflicted in the realm of human interaction that go so deep that they can hardly be exercised. So before we go today, I'll tell you a story, a true story. A true story. I had a distant auntie and she was old and full of years. Her husband had been a missionary in Indonesia and she had gone to the jungles as a young woman. She was a pious, faithful, godly woman. And then the Japanese came. And she spent the war in a concentration camp with other women under cruel Japanese captors. 
I need not tell you what they did to her. She would never speak of it either. You might know the story. She was a tall and stately Dutch woman of grace and kindness, the kind the commandant would want to break. And her husband never came home. She returned to Holland. I knew her in the 70s, 30 years later. And she could not bear to be in the presence of a Japanese person. And in my youth, I traveled the world, and I shared photos with her the last time I saw her. We had traveled with two young Japanese men, Akio and Sugio. And when she saw the photos, her face drained of color, and she almost became physically ill. And she apologized and acknowledged that it was unchristian for her to be like that. And she had prayed for decades to overcome her anger and her hatred. And she continued to pray for a forgiving heart. But in this she said she had not yet received from God this gift of grace. I have no fear that her father in heaven received her home. Welcome, good and faithful servant. I'm sure to my rest. Amen. Let's sing of that mercy of God with Psalm 85, 1, 2, and 4. <clears throat> 